Hello everybody, I hope you're all doing well. Well here we are again, back at it again this week with another collection of amazing horror stories for you to listen to. I really hope that you'll enjoy them. Let's get into it, as we drift further into Mr. Creep's mind. I'm a police detective and I found a strange journal in a missing person's bedroom. Written by Super Brooke. I'm a police detective assigned to a rather strange case. We just got a warrant to search a house owned by a man and woman named Jim and Kay Boyd. I've been searching through their things and haven't found much of anything until I got to their daughter's room. I found a journal there and I read most of it. Things just aren't adding up for me. I'm typing it all up here in hopes that somebody can make some sense of it. I'm breaking some major confidentiality laws, but I just can't keep this to myself anymore. Here's what was written. On her 10th birthday, Edie Boyd decided to go for a walk. It was 4 o'clock in the evening and no one even remembered it was her birthday. Not her dad, not her mom, not her friends. Not even Mrs. Penny wished her the obligatory happy birthday on the whiteboard at school, just like she did for every other student. Edie was invisible. No matter how much her feelings were hurt though, she didn't say a word to anyone. When she got home after school, her mom and dad were arguing again. Something about bills and money that Edie didn't care enough to listen to closely. Her parents would almost always argue every day, and it was beginning to wear her down. Money this, money that. Her parents never had any, or they never had enough. The reason for that was simple. Her father could never hold down a job long enough to keep a steady paycheck. Her mom, on the other hand, could never get a job at all. She was always too busy smoking something in the morning to knock her out for the rest of the day, or taking pill after pill in the evening to keep her up all night. Edie would sometimes wake up in the middle of the night to find her mom rummaging through her bedroom looking for who knows what in her chest of drawers. The only things in there were the few pairs of underwear that Edie had and some socks that had holes in the toes. If her mom was looking for money or drugs, Edie sure wasn't harboring any in her room. Her mom had been too crazy to talk some sense into though, so she searched anyway. For as long as she could remember, Edie's life had been this way. Her parents were always neglectful and even when they did notice her, it was always to yell at her or blame her for something she didn't do. There were many times that she had gone to school wearing tattered clothes and clothes that were too cold for the weather. She didn't own a coat, only long-sleeved t-shirts and small cardigans that didn't keep her warm in the winter. Sometimes winters in the south could get balmy and freezing. They had had cases of ice storms that knocked the power out once or twice and Edie almost froze to death during those. Her parents had been too preoccupied with themselves to even throw her a blanket. Her teachers had noticed, even Mrs. Penny. They had often sent her to the youth service center in her school where they would give her second-hand coats and packages of socks and underwear and sometimes grocery bags of food. She had always been grateful for those things. But most of the time her mom took the clothes and she was stuck without anything to keep her warm again. 
Sometimes she showed up to school with bruises all over her body. They were daughter legs and arms like constellations in the sky. Sometimes it would pain her to walk, and she would limp to the playground during recess with all the other kids in her class. Kids who had normal, loving parents. CPS had been called, but nothing had been done about her situation. Edie had been taken out of her home on one occasion, and she had gotten to live with a nice family who had a nice, big and soft bed for her with a thick and warm comforter. But she only stayed there for a week before her parents earned custody of her again. CPS never came back, and Edie learned to fend for herself. When she stepped into the house, neither one of Edie's parents saw her set her worn knapsack with a large hole in the bottom on a kitchen chair. Grab a dry biscuit that her mom made for breakfast yesterday from the counter and walk out the front door. She picked up the biscuit, pieces crumbling onto the ground as she made her way into the tree-shrouded area behind her house. It was too small to be a forest because a couple miles in and she'd be on the other side of town next to the school. It was how Edie had managed to get herself there in the morning. Their parents couldn't take her and her mom was either passed out on the couch or whispering to herself in the corner, and her dad was busy finding a new job. Neither one had cared enough to call the school then set up a bus pickup and drop off. Instead, she walked to school every morning and walked back home every evening. As she ate the biscuit, she walked further into the trees, wishing she had brought some water along with her. The biscuit was so dry that the second it touched her tongue, she could feel the moisture in her mouth drying up. She could hear a swishing sound in the distance. A warm summer wind brushed past her cheek. This was the first place she felt was home in the peace and quiet away from everyone and everything. Away from her parents arguing. Away from all the noise and all her problems. Out here in the woods, Edie was something. She was a part of nature. She took a deep breath and shoved the dry biscuit into her jeans pocket. Her stomach let out a low rumble, signaling the hunger blossoming within her belly. The biscuit was all the food that she would probably get tonight. Edie looked down as she continued to walk, wondering if her parents were still arguing back at her house. She had been gone for at least 15 minutes. Had they noticed her things yet? She stepped over stick after stick, avoiding them in case they had happened to be a snake in disguise. Surely she could tell the difference though. One had shiny scales, the other rough, discolored bark. The more she avoided them, the quicker she hopped through the woods, bounding over fallen tree limb after fallen tree limb. She hopped onto stumps and jumped from those to piles of leaves, creating a game for herself. The classic Flora's Lava Game. She pretended the grass patches were where the lava was the hottest, avoiding those altogether. If there was a patch of leaves, she could step there, but only for a short period of time because those represented thin sheets of metal floating on the lava river. The tree stumps and some thick branches were considered safe spaces, where she could take time to collect her balance. She jumped, skipped and rolled through the woods, careful to avoid the bare patches of grass. She was doing fine up until she caught her toes in a stump, which she thought was a lot shorter than expected. 
she fell face forward onto the ground, head hitting a patch of grass that she had been narrowly trying to avoid. She was lying flat on her stomach, trying to catch her breath. The fall had knocked the wind out of her and she felt like she had been hit with a football, going 50 miles per hour square in the stomach. She had half fallen into a mud puddle. Her legs and feet were now caked with clumps of mud and dirt, staining her jeans a dark brown and earthy green. She had never been able to wash them well enough for the stains to come out. When she had managed to get onto her knees, she could see the full extent of the damage. Just what Edie had expected. A hole had also been torn into the left knee of her jeans. They were ruined. Her favorite pair of pants. Edie sighed and lifted her head, peering at the trail ahead of her. The sun was low in the sky and shining right in her direction, directly into her eyes. She had to squint to see. She had heard it before she saw it, though. A small hiss, a slither, the rustling of leaves as the reptile pushed its way through the underbrush. A small snake lifted its head to meet Edie face to face. Its dark brown scales shimmered in the sunlight, illuminating a thick coat of skin. Edie sat still as stone as she watched it flick its tongue out again and again to taste the fear in the air. Edie didn't dare move. She knew that if she did, the snake would strike and she'd be a goner. She knew what kind of snake this was. A cotton mouth. She had read about them in the encyclopedia at the library. Cotton mouth venom prevents the blood in humans from clotting, which therefore leads to hemorrhaging. If she was bit, she knew that she would never make it to the hospital, especially if her parents were still arguing. They wouldn't care that she was about to meet death. Edie gulped on the lump of fear rising in her throat. She didn't move or break eye contact. The snake was ready to strike and with one slight movement, the snake would latch onto her. The reptile swayed its head back and forth, ready to strike. Edie had all but stopped breathing. What was she going to do? How was she going to get out of this? If she had just stayed home and went to her room, then she wouldn't be in this kind of trouble. She wouldn't be face to face with a venomous snake. And then she thought about the biscuit in her pocket, which led to her thinking that the snake might be hungry, and that was why it was eyeing her up and down like she was going to be its next meal. How was she going to get to the biscuit though? She moved her right hand slowly, maintaining eye contact with the snake. Any sudden movements would cause it to lunge at her. She had been in situations like this before. Heard about them from the kids at school. Edie was moving so slowly that she thought it would take her hours to pull the biscuit out of her pocket. But somehow she had managed to make contact with it. Part of it had fallen apart in her pocket, leaving a pile of crumbs in its wake. She gently pulled it out, adjusting the biscuit in the palm of her hand. She slowly held it out before the snake. Within seconds, the snake struck at the biscuit in her hand, sending it flying to the ground. Edie jumped in surprise, terrified that it would lunge at her again, but it didn't. Instead, the snake was feasting on the biscuit, having forgotten all about Edie, just like everyone else. Anger welled inside her chest, 
No matter what she did or said, she was forgettable by everyone and everything. She got to her feet, stomping over to the snake. Before it could swallow the biscuit whole, she had snatched the biscuit from its grasp and shoved the whole thing into her mouth, venom drippings and all. Edie instantly regretted it at first because the biscuit was so dry and her mouth was parched, and she needed water. She regretted it even more when she thought the snake would bite her, pierce her skin with its venom. But it didn't. Instead, it lifted its head to look at her. She swore that she could see sadness in its beady eyes. She felt guilty for having shoved the entire biscuit into her mouth. The dryness paired with the judging glare from the snake was enough to make her cry. A tear sliding down her cheek. Eventually, she couldn't take it anymore and she hightailed it out of the woods, running in the opposite direction away from the snake. She had spit the biscuit somewhere on the ground on her way back home, unable to swallow the huge clump of dry dough that had mushed together in her mouth. She kept running until she saw her house appear in the distance, a wave of relief washing over her. For once in her life, she was glad to see that familiar dirty white vinyl with a massive hole underneath the back window. She could see the damage on the roof where her dad had tried to patch up some leaks. Where the heck have you been at? Her dad asked when she threw herself through the front door. You supposed to be home an hour ago. Edie looked at him. His eyes were bloodshot and wide with anger. He was breathing heavily and his mouth was parted, revealing the bottom row of his teeth jutted out from a severe overbite. His cheeks were red and pockmarked, a product of arguing with her mom, who was nowhere to be seen at that moment. Her dad's white t-shirt had been torn like someone had tried to rip it off him, and his jeans hung low on his hips, revealing the band of a pair of Fruit of Loom boxers underneath. Instead of offering up an explanation, Edie ignored her dad and went straight to her room, shutting the door behind her. Edie, her dad yelled. She didn't want to face her dad's wrath for not listening to him, but she couldn't take the added stress. Edie threw herself onto the bed and closed her eyes, hoping for sleep to take her instead. Over the next few days, Edie hadn't been allowed to go to school. After she had ignored her dad, she took a beating and punishment of being locked in her room. She was only allowed out to use the bathroom and to drink water. Those were the worst three days of her life. She had a bruise the size of her dad's fist on her cheekbone, sore to the touch. Her stomach rumbled with hunger on and off for those three days, and the longer that she went without food, the more that her stomach hurt. But one thing that lingered in her mind during those three days was the snake that she met in the woods. She thought about him to help get her mind off of things at home. She wondered if he was still there, if he was still hungry. Albert is what she decided to call him, in remembrance of the stray cat that she once had as a pet for a week, but then disappeared shortly after. When she had regained her freedom, she decided to take a plate of food into the woods with her, hoping to see the snake again. This time, she had packed an array of foods. Some grapes, a lunch meat and cheese, another dry biscuit, and some chocolate. She knew that snakes ate small prey, but she didn't have any field mice around to bring Albert, 
so she settled on what was in the scant fridge at home. She took the same route through the woods as she did three days ago, although this time she chose not to play that stupid child's game that got her hurt and ruined her jeans. She walked and walked, looking at the ground for any signs of the snake, but she never found one. Albert had probably slithered off somewhere far away after their meeting. Why would a snake stay around in hopes of Edie bringing it food? He was a reptile, but not a human. She scoffed and silently laughed at herself. How could she have been so stupid? She sat down on a big rock next to where she had tripped the last time playing floor as lava. She picked at the lunch meat, taking bird bites of everything else. Although she was starving, she felt that she was too sick to eat anything too substantial. She heard a slither somewhere close, a brushing of leaves and grass. Was it Albert? Edie searched the ground looking for the snake. He was so dark that he matched the color of the ground, and it was difficult to tell if she was looking at him until he raised his head from the underbrush, just like he had the first time. Albert, she said relieved. The snake had stayed in the spot. It made her wonder why, but she tried not to think too deeply about it. Maybe she had made a friend in this lonely snake. Albert slithered his tongue in and out as if in reply. He didn't try to strike her or lunge at her. In fact, he looked happy to see her. Edie could tell in the way that he was bobbing his head back and forth. She smiled, grabbing a piece of the lunch meat. She pushed it toward Albert and he took a piece from her, and she took a bit in turn. They shared the plate of food until only crumbs had remained. Edie would feed a bit to Albert and then she would take a bite. They continued with that pattern until the plate was empty. When it was, though, Edie frowned. She had no more food to give to Albert, but he stayed in the same place, full and satisfied. She reached her hand out to pat his head with two fingers. The scales were cold and slimy to the touch. She recoiled at the sensation, and Albert withdrew into a coil in the ground, slithering away in the underbrush. Edie felt like she hadn't spent all but 20 minutes with him, and now she had scared him away. A tear fell down her cheek and another and another until she was sobbing. The one thing that she had managed to get to notice her that she had scared away. She sniffed, wiping under her nose with the back of her hand. Edie would come back the next day with even more food, and the next day and the next day, she and Albert would become best friends. She was sure of it. Edie kept to her word and returned the next day with even more lunch meat, cheese, fruit, and bread. She would feed Albert a bite and then she would take a bite, and the pattern continued like that every day until her parents started noticing food was missing from the fridge and pantry. Meaty Joanna Boyd, you're eating us out of our house and home. Her dad grumbled at her, slamming the fridge door shut. Where are you putting it all? You ain't big as nothing. Her heart jumped into her throat. What was she going to say? How was she going to lie her way out of this? I just get hungry after school is all, she replied, picking at the cuticles on her nails. She was working on a loose piece of skin on her finger. 
picking and pecking at it until she could feel the blood start pouring out of her. She lifted her finger to her mouth, sucking and licking the wound clean. The familiar taste of metal coated her tongue. Oh, Edie girl. Her mom's raspy voice trailed up the hallway. She was coming into the kitchen to join them. That's the only food we got until next month, you hear. Don't be wasting what we got. Edie had been taking the bare minimum in hopes that they would notice, but she was wrong once again. Her parents always noticed the small things if it affected them directly. Never if it only affected her. Listen to your mama. Her dad pointed his big index finger toward her chest. Go to your room. Yes, sir. She said and made her way down the hall, sidestepping where her mother stood. Edie could feel her wide, wild eyes never waver from her small frame. She walked a little fast down the hall and into her room. She shut the door behind her, threw herself onto her decades-old mattress on the floor, and cried and cried until she couldn't open her eyes. After yesterday's debacle, Edie decided that she was going to see Albert one more time. She hadn't gotten to see him the day before because her parents had confronted her about the missing food, and she hadn't wanted to add fuel to the fire because God knows she would have received the beating of a lifetime. Edie wrapped two slices of bread, a slice of ham, and a cheese loaf into a couple of grapes and a paper towel and made her way to the back door. She had closed it quietly behind her, hoping not to wake her parents. They would still be asleep since it was a Saturday, even if it was one o'clock in the afternoon. She skipped down the back porch steps, careful not to drop her sandwich and grapes. She looked ahead and almost felt like she could hear the woods whispering to her beckoning for her to come inside and find Albert and stay there forever. She wanted to, but then what would happen to her? Her parents wouldn't care, and she knew that for certain. But someone at school would call the police, report her missing. She really just wanted to be left alone. Or maybe they would forget about her entirely. She was invisible after all. Edie trekked forward into the woods to the secret spot where she and Albert had shared meals. She found him curled up perfectly where she left him the last time. Hey, buddy, Meaty said, excitement lighting up in her eyes and tone of voice. She was glad to see her friend again. As soon as he had recognized her voice, Albert lifted his head and began bobbing it back and forth as if he was excited to see her too. I've got some more goodies for us. Edie balanced herself into a sitting position on the big rock that she always sat on. She carefully unwrapped the bread, meat, and grapes, grabbing a slice of bread first. She took a small bite and then offered it to Albert, who struck at the bread, tearing a piece from the slice. Edie smiled at taking another bite. She switched to the ham and cheese loaf next, sharing the slice with Albert, back and forth, back and forth. Edie would chew her bite and Albert would swallow his. They had almost finished eating everything when she heard a rustle of leaves and branches to her left. Edie jerked her head to the side to see the giant form of her dad appear in the clearing. His cheeks were red and a bead of sweat dripped down his forehead. In his hand he held a big, rusty machete. He must have used it to slash through branches and shrubbery. He was a big man and he couldn't fit through the woods like Edie could. You thieving, conniving little... 
He seethed through his teeth clamped together. His jaw tightened more and more the longer that Edie stared at him. I should have known you was up to no good. He started toward her and Edie let go of the paper towel, rising to her feet, scrambling to get away from her dad. What the heck do you think this is? You're feeding a snake. A snake, Edie, what's wrong with you? She stumbled backward as her dad reached for her arm. Out of the corner of her eye, she could see Albert slithering into a defensive stance. He was scared just as much as she was. He looked like he would strike at her dad in any second. He grabbed Edie's wrist, squeezing it tightly. She tried to pull away, but to no avail. Dad, she said, exasperated. Please, it's not what it looks like. I don't care what it looks like. He growled, pulling Edie towards him. It's stopping right now. Edie's dad stepped to the left, dragging Edie with him. She tried to pull away, but he was so strong and she was so small. But in one fell swoop, Albert lunged at her dad in an attempt to bite him, to send venom through his system. He was still a cottonmouth after all, but her dad was too quick for him now. He swung the machete and just as his head almost made contact with the skin on his bare upper arm, and he sliced his head clean off. And within seconds, Albert was dead. Edie stared down at his slithering body. It was still writhing like a worm on the ground, but he was dead and she knew he was. The snakes were known to move around long after they were dead, but they couldn't survive without a head. Nothing could. Her first, best friend in years was dead, and her dad had killed him. Come on. Her dad yanked her hard, almost sending her falling to the ground. No outside privileges for a while. If you think you can steal our food and get away with it, then you got another thing coming. Edie tried to yank her arm out of his grasp, but he was way too strong. She could see the veins popping out of his muscles in the strain. As he continued to force her out of the woods, Edie let the grief and pain take over. Her stomach was in knots and she couldn't breathe. Albert was dead, and so was she. She passed out before they made it out into the clearing. Days passed and Edie couldn't tell if it was daylight or dark anymore. She was let out of her room three times a day to go to the bathroom. Her mom and dad brought her water a few times throughout the day and food only once a day. It was rough and she didn't know how long she would have to be locked in her own room, forced to lay there and stare at the ceiling. She cried every day for her friend Albert. She wondered if his thin, lifeless body was still lying there out in the open, or if some other animal had carried it off. She got sicker and sicker every day. When her parents brought her food, she would just push it out of the way and not touch it. Not even a bite. She could feel her stomach growing inward, eating itself and her muscles. Her skin grew pale and her cheeks were sallow. She was so weak that she could barely lift herself out of bed, and when she did eat, nothing made her feel better or stronger. Several days into her prison stay, she had knocked on her own door. Dad, she said out of breath, I think something's wrong, I think I need a doctor. But they ignored her, grumbled something about her being selfish from the living room, and she slumped her weak body against the door. Her head had lowed to the side and she didn't have the strength to lift it up. 
she didn't even have the strength to cry. She was fading and her parents weren't going to do anything about it. She closed her eyes and thought about Albert. She thought about eating all those slices of bread and lunch meat and fruit. She thought about feeding him a bite after she had eaten some. They ate after each other a lot and she knew that she was ingesting venom with every bite she took after Albert. The venom would enter her system and float around in her bloodstream, making her one with Albert. They had shared more than friendship. They had shared a part of one another as well. When Edie's dad had killed Albert, she wasn't exaggerating when she said that it had killed her too, because that's what was happening. She was dying because Albert was dead. It was just taking a lot longer because um, she was a lot bigger than Albert. The days went by slower and slower until eventually her parents had opened her bedroom door and Edie was passed out on the floor, pale and barely breathing. Her parents were worried then. They worried that they had starved her to death. What would the police do to them? Would they get arrested? How were they going to get out of this? Instead of rushing her to the hospital, Edie's dad took her out into the woods, carrying her limp body in his arms. Each breath she took in was shorter and smaller. She was close to death and she could feel it. Edie's dad walked her a while until eventually he stopped. Edie was able to open her eyes briefly to see that they were in her and Albert's spot, the spot where they ate together every day, the spot where they became one and the same. She was fading in and out of consciousness, but she could still hear her dad grunting and working. She could hear these slices of metal sliding into the ground and the cracking of roots being separated from their homes. Splatters of dirt rained down on her face from time to time. Her dad was digging. He scooped and scooped rocks and dirt for what felt like hours, pounding his shovel into the great ground. Eventually, though, he stopped, and all was silent for a few moments. Edie reveled in the silence, silently hoping for death to take her. Her dad lifted her up, but he wasn't careful. She could feel her hands knocking into the side of the rock that she used to sit on when she fed Albert. He wasn't careful when he threw her into the hole that he had dug for her makeshift grave either. But when she was in the hole, she didn't move. She couldn't. Her body was too weak. She did feel something flop on top of her though, and she pretended that her dad was burying her with Albert, that he had had the courtesy of throwing her best friend into the grave with him. She tried to move her hand to touch him, to make sure that it was actually him and not just a pile of dirt, but she couldn't muster enough energy to even wiggle her fingers. This was it for Edie. She was about to die, but she was ready. A small smile played on the edges of her lips. She drew in one last breath and thought of Albert before her, slowly letting her soul leave her body forever. Just as she withered away quietly, though, she could feel her dad covering her body and Albert's up with dirt. She was gone. Edie Boyd has been missing for weeks now. No one has seen or heard from her. A police force and rescue squad have gone to dig up the area that we think was written in her journal. We all thought that it was written by her, but why is it written in third person? And more importantly, how was she able to continue writing if she was dead?
Thank you to HelloFresh for sponsoring this week's episode of Creepscast. HelloFresh is here to help make the most festive time of the year even better. From hosting holiday parties to family dinners on busy weeknights, you can count on HelloFresh to deliver fresh portioned ingredients and seasonal recipes right to your door. How convenient is that? Now because the holiday season is such a busy time of year, most of us are short on time, myself included. HelloFresh has quick and easy options, such as 20-minute meals and easy cleanup dishes that you can choose from. They're delicious and easy to make, and these time-saving recipes allow you to spend more time with friends and family. Not only does HelloFresh let you save time, but it also helps you save money. HelloFresh is cheaper than grocery shopping and 25% less expensive than takeout. What better way to save some money for holiday shopping, or to even treat yourself? Personally, this has made preparing dinner an easier and more enjoyable experience for myself. I made the firecracker meatballs the other day, and not only was it easy to make, but it was delicious too. Additionally, Green Chef is now owned by HelloFresh and with a wider array of meal plans to choose from. There is something for everyone. Go to HelloFresh.com slash MrCreeps18 and use code MrCreeps18 for 18 free meals plus free shipping. Again, that's HelloFresh.com slash MrCreeps18 and use code MrCreeps18 for 18 free meals plus free shipping. Thanks again to HelloFresh, America's number one meal kit. I'm a nurse for the elderly. One of the patients made a dark confession. Written by that exo guy. Despite what some might tell you, it's not actually so bad to work in this field. Sure, some of the elderly can be difficult at times and like any other job, this one has its stomach churning moments. But most of them are sweethearts. All it takes is some compassion and patience to break through to them. So yeah, I mostly love this job. I wouldn't give it up if I could help it. The only part that I don't like are the occasional confessions from some of the patients. They say that people can feel their ends nearing. And after a few years of working this job, I've come to believe that. Some of them have no one else. No family or friends left. So they air their dirty laundry, so to say, in front of us nurses. Most of the time, it's pretty mild stuff. Old Gregory had cheated on his wife in their 30s. Larry used to be into some hardcore stuff. Lisa stole from her company for a while. Stuff you don't necessarily expect, but that doesn't surprise you in hindsight. Other times, it borders on disturbing. Jenkins had a bar fight and ran away. And to this day, he's not sure if the other guy survived. Sasha had to get rid of her baby on her own, without telling her boyfriend at the time that she was even pregnant. Sierra abandoned her family, running away in the night to start a new life. And seeing the missing person posters ate her up inside. That's the kind of stuff that gets under my skin, but I can at least understand where they're coming from. I can sympathize even if I don't condone their actions. But then, there are the monsters. The ones that have committed truly atrocious deeds and their confessions keep me up at night. 
Julia, the sweetest old lady that you would ever meet, gaslit her husband into ending himself to cash out on his life insurance. Freddie helped burn an entire village back in the Vietnam War, basking in the flames and these screams of the dying. Sally did horrible things to her child growing up, to the point that it caused a myriad of developmental problems. Mind you, I haven't been there for myself for all those confessions. Us nurses tend to share, morbid as it might sound. Go ahead and judge if you want. But we didn't ask for those burdens to be placed on our shoulders, and we'll seek relief wherever we can find it. Most of the time, it's just innocent gossip. The you-won't-believe-what-Gus used to do when he was young type. Other times, there are tears and silent cries in the break room, stone-cold expressions and a pressing atmosphere, not a hint of levity to go around. But such is life in this field. Most of us have learned to live with it, and those who couldn't walked away. I myself am in the first camp, and I don't think last night will change my mind. Anyway, I'm getting ahead of myself. You need some context in order to make heads or tails of this. It all started with Parker, and so I should too. He's a bitter old man. No way to sugarcoat it. A tough nut to crack. Rage and hatred for everyone and everything simmering under the surface at all times. He's the type of person that won't be satisfied until your parade is soaked to the bone in rain. He's been here since before I was hired, so the other nurses warned me about him from day one. God help you if you have to interact with him. He can ruin your entire week just by opening his mouth, they had told me. I didn't take them seriously, thinking that he couldn't be that bad. Spoiler alert, he was, but not in the ways that you would expect. He didn't get physically violent like some of the other elderly, he didn't fling crap and soaked diapers at us. He flung words, but he knew how to make them cut and cut deep. Our first interaction happened when I had to check up on him and make sure that he took his medicine. It was a nice evening and I found old man Parker in his room, lounging in his recliner. He faced towards the windows and back to the door, and he didn't bother to turn around and look at me when I had entered. Good evening, Mr. Parker, I greeted. Hey, fresh meat. He spat a response laced with spite. I gritted my teeth and tried to sound polite when I answered. My name is Jessica, but... Fresh meat, he interrupted me. You won't last a month, so I won't bother learning your name. Now why are you here, fresh meat? I told him why and he pointed at the empty pill bottle on the nightstand next to him and then he returned to staring out the window at the sunset without another word, so I took my leave. That was how the first three weeks went by. I went over to his room for this or that. He made some snide remarks to insult me, and I held my tongue. It was clear that he didn't want anyone around, especially me, but I was never a quitter, and I wasn't about to bend the knee to some old fart with a vendetta against happiness itself. You still here? He had asked on the fourth week when I passed by his room to change his bedding. 
My god, woman, you're about as smart as you are pretty. He was in his recliner again. Most of his evenings and nights were spent there. By day, he would be outside or in the common area, terrorizing everyone that he happened upon. But as soon as dusk had approached, he would retreat to his room and peer out the window until he fell asleep in the recliner. I ignored his remark, approaching the bed with a fresh set of sheets and pillowcases. What? Did you swallow your tongue? Forgot how words work. He kept pestering me. I took off the old sheet and discarded it on the floor, even though it wasn't all that dirty. That wouldn't be a big surprise. Honestly, the only thing surprising me is that you learned to speak in the first place. Now, I don't recommend doing what I did, reacting like I had. At that point, I should have thrown in the towel and walked away, but I didn't. After two weeks of him, like that on the daily, I snapped. I threw the fresh sheets haphazardly on the bed and stomped over to his recliner. Listen here, you shriveled up ball sack. I went off on him. I don't know what your problem is, but I don't need this kind of treatment in my life. I'm not surprised that your family left you. With an attitude like that, I would have dropped you up at a care home for his chance that I got as well. I hurled insult after insult at him, digging deep to dredge out the nastiest side of me, fully expecting Parker to go off on me in return. But instead, he stood there and took it all with each colorful word leaving my mouth. In the corners of his lips, I pulled a little further up into a satisfied grin. Now he stopped when I ran out of breath, and he waited a moment to make sure that I was done. What did you say your name was again? He asked. Jessica. Jessica, he repeated, letting each letter roll off his tongue. I tell you what, I like you. And that was that. He returned to staring out the window and I was able to carry out my work in peace. I had regretted the outburst for a while, feared that it would somehow come back to bite me in the butt and get me fired. But Parker didn't tell anyone. It was our little secret. Every day after that, he would grin when he saw me. He still gave me lip but it was different, more jovial. Not trying to insult me and drive me away, just to tease me. But I could work with him without breaking down into tears afterwards, so I took my win. After a while, I started teasing him back. He would call me his insult of the day, and I called him mine, and we would laugh it off and move on. What I'm trying to say is that we developed this weird bond, and I actually started having fun. I started looking forward to it. We didn't talk about anything else and I didn't know the first thing about him and he didn't know the first thing about me, but in my eyes that only added to the charm. Life moved on and before I noticed, I had been working there for years. Rumors about Parker abounded, everyone had their theories and beliefs but I couldn't confirm or deny any of them. The man was still as much of a mystery to me as he had been on the first day. And then one day about a month ago, things had started to change. He would make less comments. He spent more and more time in his room, isolating from everyone. And Parker had always been very self-sufficient for someone his age. But he started needing help with things and I could see that it killed him on the inside. 
I didn't mind. That was what I was getting paid for. But the man had his pride. He refused to be seen by a medic and get treatment. So we all had expected him to kick the bucket soon. A prospect that made most everyone in that care home happy. But I for one dreaded it. Even so, I knew better than to try and talk to him about it. One evening before I went home, I checked on him. Parker was in his usual spot in the recliner, drapes drawn aside and window wide open. The sun was already gone, sunken below the horizon, painting it red as a night had creeped in. He didn't acknowledge my presence, not until I had stopped next to him. Hey, Jessica, he greeted, his voice a low rumble. I nearly went for a hey fart bone but the sound of my name and the way that he said it gave me pause. For the first time in the many years that I had known him, he sounded serious for once. A pit of dread formed in my stomach. Everything all right, Mr. Parker. His lips curled at the corners, pulling his gaunt face into a smile. A dry, raspy chuckle left his throat, but he let my question linger in the air for a long moment. Going home for the night, he asked. Yes. Could you stay just for a little while longer? Of course. I knew what this meant. Parker felt that his time was coming, and he wanted someone next to him. I leaned in to take his hand into mine, but the guy will still be the same to the very end. He slapped my hand away. So we stood there in awkward silence, watching the night settle outside. You're the closest thing that I have to a friend, Jessica, he said out of the blue. The closest thing that I have to a family. He let out another chuckle, but it sounded sad. God, I'm so pathetic. I put a hand on his shoulder, and this time he didn't slap it away. I had no idea what exactly to say. Parker wasn't one for sappy speeches, so in the end, I went with the truth. As blunt as it was, I figured that he would appreciate my honest opinion. It's your fault for being a grumpy old fart. You could have had so many friends here, so why didn't you? Do you have any plans tonight? He asked, and I nodded to no. Then, can I answer your question with a story? Sure. He shifted in the recliner, biding his time as he searched for the right words. I had seen it all before in others. They think themselves ready to open up until the time comes to actually do it. With a sigh, he resigned himself to the situation and started speaking. Parker was born in a small town in the 1940s, right off the back of the Second World War. He had an older brother and a father neither of which he remembers. The first died of some disease as a child, and the second got drafted and died overseas while Parker was still a baby. That left his mother alone to raise him, but they weren't the only ones struggling to make ends meet in that town. Most everyone else did too. Life back then was harsh, especially for isolated communities like theirs. But I had a decent enough childhood. Parker had assured me. 
My mother did her best, working herself to the bone and going hungry most nights to make sure that I didn't. He took a short pause, prying his gaze away from the window to make eye contact with me. I could tell that he was uncomfortable, but dwelling on the past brought him a great deal of anguish. But he looked away from me after a long moment, back at the dark world outside, and he continued speaking. Despite his mother's best efforts, his childhood was short-lived. Parker had to grow up fast and to become dependable, to help around the house and find work. It wasn't that uncommon back then. Kids as young as eight or nine working shoulder to shoulder with the adults didn't have much of a choice. Things such as getting an education or waiting until they were adults, those were a little more than pipe dreams. But luckily, Parker was big for someone his age. At only 10, he was taller and stronger than his 15-year-old friends. He could handle this manual labor, and having an extra set of hands to go around, a second breadwinner, it did wonders for their household. I still remember getting my first ever pay, he said with a sad smile. A small sum, but I was proud. Mother wanted me to spend it on myself to get something nice, but I didn't. I bought a sack of flour for her to make bread out of, and I used the fabric to make myself a new pair of shorts. I'm, I'm so sorry, I stuttered. Yeah, me too. But time went on. Parker kept working throughout the years, living life one day at a time. Trouble was never far off, but he faced it head on. The adults always tried to shortchange him for his work, and other kids tried to bully him out of his meager earnings regularly. The first time that happened, I came home empty-handed with a broken nose and a busted lip. He said bitterly. Five of them had teamed up on me. It was a dog-eat-dog world back then. When he was about 13, and his mother brought home a new man, Parker had hoped for a change. A chance for him to have a father, a role model, somebody to teach him to how to be a man himself. He thought that life would get easier. Know how wrong I was, he said. That man was an alcoholic abuser. Parker and his mother found out as much soon enough. Her sooner than him, but he saw the signs. Even though he still worked and brought his earnings home, Food was suddenly in short supply. His mother always had bruises that she tried to hide, and his stepfather was always drunk. When I had returned home beaten up again by the older kids, I was hopeful for once. I thought that he would go out there and do something about it. And, and he didn't. I asked with hesitation. Parker huffed. He beat me up as well for being a sissy. In his own words, it better not happen again, you hear me. He said that the next time I come home empty-handed, he would show me a real beatdown. Why didn't you run away or get the authorities involved? Run away? Where to? Parker answered, and the authorities didn't give a crap. He kept enduring it for the sake of his mother couldn't leave her all alone with the stepfather, but it escalated gradually. Soon enough, his stepfather would take Parker's money outright, and then he would beat his mother out in the open. 
It wasn't long until he raised his hand at me at the regular, Parker said. But it kept my mother safe, so I endured it. On the nights that I'd get beaten up, she was safe. And those nights only got more common as time went on. At first, Parker would get beaten up for stepping in, taking the place of his mother. Then he would get beaten up for not bringing enough money home, then for no reason at all. At some point, I couldn't take it anymore and I, I snapped, Parker admitted. The other kids stole my money again and I was afraid to go home that night, afraid of what he would do to me. So I, I ran off into the woods looking for a place to sleep. And instead, I found this old well. Old well, I asked. Not sure what it had to do with anything up to that point. Old well, Parker confirmed. You know, a hole in the ground for people to get drinking water. I know what a well is. At any rate, he found this old well. A dilapidated thing, long out of use and in serious disrepair. Parker nearly fell down into it when he leaned over the edge to peer down. He threw a pebble into it, but it never landed. And then he tried spitting into it and yelling down into the shaft. It echoed for a long time, much longer than it should have. Parker listened in awe as his own voice reverberated from the well for minutes on end, not getting any fainter. But awe aside, it gave him an idea. I didn't like the sound of that. I did end up returning home that night, Parker said. I found him taking his frustration out on my mother since I wasn't there and he chased me when he saw me. Parker led his stepfather out of town and into the woods, farther away from civilization, deeper and deeper between trees until he heard the faint echo of the well still calling out. I hid nearby and kept quiet, he said, waited for him to find the well, and he did. He heard the echoes of my scream and I thought I fell down into the dang thing trying to hide. He laughed about it. His stepfather approached the well and leaned over the edge, still laughing. You learn your lesson yet? Parker imitated him. Little did he know that I did. It just wasn't the lesson that he wanted me to learn. Parker burst out from his hiding place while his stepfather was distracted and ran up at him. All it took was a single push. He said grimly. A single push and he tumbled over the edge, fell into that abyss head first, screaming all the way to the bottom. From that day onward, the echo of his voice joined mine in the well. The authorities pretended to search for him for a few days, but no one truly even cared about it. He was just an alcoholic, so everybody thought that he had gotten his comeuppance that he had died in a ditch somewhere, or that he ran away in search of greener pastures and other people to terrorize. No one suspected us, Parker said. Not my mother who was too weak to fight back, and they considered me just a kid. No way in their eyes for either one of us to kill an adult man. With him out of the picture though, Parker's life improved somewhat. He still earned a pittance, and the other kids still bullied him, but at least he could rest easy in his own home. I went to that well every day at first, and then every other day, and then once a week at most. 
but the screams, they never stopped, day and night. They got fainter and barely a whisper in the wind, but I could still hear them. Didn't it scare you? It terrified me, Parker admitted, but I also saw the possibilities. That answer terrified me. I contemplated for a moment to call it a night, to put an end to Parker's confession and leave, but I was also curious for better or worse. Next up were the kids that bullied me, Parker continued. It took me a long time to build up the courage to even consider it, but enough of it will push you reasonable men into unreasonable actions. The group was five members strong, their leader 19 years old and the youngest about Parker's age. The rest were all in between. Starvian street urchins, Parker had called them. Either orphans or with whole lives similar to his own that pushed them to run away and brave the world. Except they were lazy, Parker said. They took the easy way out, stealing, conning, and bullying other kids like they did to me. The community wasn't happy with them, but they never targeted adults though they were tolerated. Until they beat up Parker for the hundredth time and he decided that he had had enough. I only wanted to get rid of their leader, he said. I thought their little clique would break apart without him, but I couldn't separate them. Parker tried to challenge him to a one-on-one -on -one fight outside of town, but he came with the rest of his group and he was pissed. You could see the bloodlust in his eyes from a mile away. I knew that they would give it to me like never before, so I had no other choice. All five of them had to go. Parker ran away and just like his stepfather, they had chased him into the woods. He hid near the well again and when they got closer to inspect the echoing voices, Parker had repeated his earlier stunt. I pushed the oldest boy first. He said in a stone-cold voice, and then before the others had a chance to wise up, I pushed the second oldest as well. The others were smaller and I could take them. They, they tried to run away, to escape with their lives, but I couldn't let them. Parker chased them down and he caught up to the youngest first. He tripped the boy from behind and stomped on his knee to break it, and then he kept going. The second one he grabbed by the shoulders and swung into a tree head first, snapping his neck. I tackled the last one and got him into a chokehold. He kicked his legs and clawed at my arm and tried to bite me a few times. When he realized that he couldn't break free, he started pleading, begging for his life. Told me that he wouldn't speak a single word about what happened there. He begged like that all the way to the well, until his legs were over the edge. The boy with the broken neck followed, and the one with the broken leg had dragged himself quite the distance by the time that Parker had got to him. But he went through with it, and that night, the wall gained five more voices. Parker stopped his retelling for a moment and stared off into the distance. At first, I thought he was either giving me a breather, a bit of time to process what I had heard, or that he was searching for words. I looked outside as well and the silhouette of a tree against the starry night sky shook in the distance. A reverberating scream followed. Oh, we don't have much time left. I have to hurry up, Parker whispered. 
I was frozen by his side as he picked up the story, in shock and in fear, not knowing what was about to go down or what I should do. I had witnessed a few confessions by that point, but none came even close to Parker's. He had confessed to six murders in just as many minutes, and I was sure that there would be a few more by the time that he would be done with me. The guilt ate me up inside, he confessed. I went by the well every single day, fighting back the urge to jump into it myself. No one missed those kids, and no one in the community blamed Parker. He wasn't the only one getting bullied by them, and on some level, everyone was glad that they were gone. One less problem in their lives, so they were happy to pretend the five ran off somewhere to carry out bigger heists. I was depressed for years because of it, but I kept telling myself that I had to do it, that my life was better now. Lies that I only half believed, but they got me out of bed in the morning. Another tree shook outside, closer to us, but there wasn't a scream this time. Parker flinched, visibly. Anyway, the years flew by. People kept leaving the small town, flocking to bigger cities in search of work. I was one of them and found this wonderful girl and I left with her. They took Parker's mother as well and the three of them found work at some factory or another. And for a few years he thought that he had left the small town and his horrible deeds behind. Until I started hearing screams in the night. Voices that I recognized. I thought I was imagining it at first. I tried to convince myself that it was nothing more than me just going insane with guilt. Another tree shook outside, followed by a howl. And let me guess, it was all too real. Parker nodded his head. My mother went missing one evening and we never found her. The big city police took it a bit more seriously, but they couldn't dig up a single lead. No witnesses, no suspects, nothing. But Parker knew exactly where to find her or what was left of her. After a long trip back to his hometown and a trek through the woods, his worst fears were confirmed. His mother's voice had joined the tortured chorus in the well. I, I broke down right then and there, cried in that forest by myself all night long. It was supposed to be me, not her. He returned home now, if only for the sake of his girlfriend and soon-to-be wife. She was pregnant and they would soon have their first child, and Parker wanted a better life for them than he had had growing up. He would be there for his kids, there for his wife, there to make sure that they would be alright. They got married with little fanfare, few friends and even fewer family members for a proper wedding, and their child was born a couple of months later. The most beautiful baby girl in the world, Parker explained with a glint in his eyes. Holding her, hearing her crying, it was all that I ever wanted. Enough to justify everything that I had done and been through in a heartbeat. Another tree shook outside and something took contour in the underbrush at the edge of the property. I let out a yelp and Parker reached for me. He grabbed my forearm and held me steady as I tried to back away. We still have a few minutes, he said calmly. And don't worry, it's not here for you. You're safe. He proceeded with the rest of his story, 
and I had to try my hardest to divide my attention between him and whatever was out there. I treasured every moment with my wife and daughter, but you know how these things go. She grew up in a heartbeat, and before I realized it, she spoke her first words and took her first steps, moments that I couldn't be prouder of as a father. The thing bellowed, a guttural sound that rattled my bones. Dying animal was my first thought, a coyote getting murdered or a fox going into heat. I took a step forward into the faint circle of light surrounding the care home, and I saw a human face, and then another and another one, contorted in agony and held together to form a gigantic head. And then that thing returned once more, Parker said, raising a hand to point at the advancing beast. More cries in the night, more screams and howls. I knew what it wanted, but... I couldn't let it have me or my family. Another step brought its neck and torso into view. Pulsing muscles crisscrossing each other at random. Skin stretched until pulled taut. Dozens of human arms jutting out of it in random places. Its myriad of eyes moved every which way. Scanning and searching. I knew that I had to do something before it was too late. To either get rid of it or appease it, and I, I knew what it wanted. What? I asked, stuttering and shaking with fear. People, bodies, victims, Parker answered. More of them. I had opened up its appetite and now it was hungry. If I didn't give it what it wanted, it would get it itself. Take my world for me. I didn't want to do it and I tried to talk myself out of it, up until the very last moment. But I was pressed for time and worried sick for my family. So I went back into town. For a moment I wished my eyes could do the same thing the creatures did. I wanted to turn and look at Parker and to see his face. But I didn't dare take my eyes off of it. Every last muscle in my body was clenched, holding me in place. I was barely able to breathe and it took another step forward and all of those dead and beady eyes focused, every last one of them pinned in the window, on the room, on me and Parker. I just, uh, I kidnapped someone, Parker said, his voice fraying into a cry at the edges. An older man living all by himself. I knew him, he had been a widower for decades and he knew me. He barely fought back as I tied and gagged him. I expected him to play it as well, like the kids had. I expected him to fight me. But the silence, it, it was worse somehow. Did, did he know about that, that thing? I managed to push out a question. What? No, of course not, Parker answered. He was just old and frail, and he knew that he couldn't do anything to stop me. Maybe he had given up on life long ago, like I ended up doing, I don't know. The rest of the monster came into view as it advanced towards the open window, and there was so much more to it than I expected. So many legs moving haphazardly, slapping the lawn at awkward angles to pull the body along. It felt surreal, like that window was a screen and I was merely watching some cheap horror movie with even cheaper special effects. 
That night, I dragged the old man out of town and through the woods. I got him to the well, said a short prayer for his soul, and I tipped him over the edge. He went down without a sound. The monster stopped a few feet away from the window and craned its head forward. At that point, I was pretty much useless, more of an ornament than an active participant. Parker let go of me and moved to get up, falling twice. His old bones were all out of strength, but he still had his determination. The third attempt saw him to his feet, even if a bit wobbly. I returned to my wife and daughter after that, he said, taking a step towards the window. And all was fine for a while. Seeing her smile growing up, having her by my side, it kept the guilt at bay. She was my world, and I was ready to do anything to keep my world from crumbling. The monster cooed. One of its many faces moved across its skin, pushing against the rest until it got to the forefront. A wide smile took over its lips, replacing the agonized expression. The next time the screams returned, I knew what I had to do. Knew what the rest of my life would be like. What sins I had to commit. Every few years, I would return to that cursed town, kidnap someone in the dead of night, and throw them into the well. That smile on the face at the forefront only grew wider, but the rest didn't match. They started whispering aggressively, their voices merging as they got louder. I had kept at it until my daughter grew up, until she found a boy she wanted to marry and moved out, until everyone had left that town behind to be an empty shell for the forest to retake, and I called it a job well done. I thought my daughter was safe and that I could finally let the monster take me, that I would finally atone for all of my sins. Parker closed the gap to the window, and so did the monster. It pushed its many arms into the room, hands both big and small, grasping at the air as they tried to reach him. And what happened to her? I asked. The question felt strange, coming up my throat and leaving my mouth, like it was uttered by someone a million miles away, completely detached from the situation. Parker extended one of his arms, but paused and turned to face me. What do you think happened, Jessica? He asked in a somber voice. What do you think pushed me on the run for the rest of my life? Made me grow wary of approaching people and making friends? I held back the answer, if only because I had one more question. Why tell me all of this? Parker smirked. The same mischievous grin that I had gotten used to from him. Because I'm a selfish old son of a gun, he said matter-of-factly. I wanted at least one person to know and maybe miss me. And now you do. He took the final step that brought him within the monster's reach. And it got a hold of his arm with 100 fingers. The many eyes looked past Parker and directly at me. Thank you, Jessica, Parker said, his back to me. You can leave now. That would be best. 
I didn't argue with him on that. I slowly walked backwards towards the door. My head was heavy, mind spinning, and my legs felt like unsteady stilts a hundred feet long. But I did it. I reached the door, backed out into the corridor, and closed it gently. Parker watched me the whole time, a peaceful smile on his lips until the latch had clicked. The rest of the night was a blur. I wandered to the break room with tears streaming down my face, but I didn't even realize that I was crying until I tried to light a cigarette and a tear had fell on it. My hand shook like an earthquake, as did the rest of me. I smoked about half the pack, waiting and praying for that thing to leave so that I could too. A couple of hours later, I finally built up the courage to bolt it out of the care home into my car. I drove home in a haze, eyes darting at every little movement, and I didn't manage to sleep a wink until the break of dawn. But I returned to the care home for my next shift, looking like a ghost. Police were there interrogating everyone about Parker's disappearance, and I lied to them and couldn't possibly tell them the truth, not when I don't even know where that well is. So yeah, I lied to them until they left me alone. I lied until they packed in their car and drove off. Everyone else is awfully happy that Parker is finally gone, and I stand out among them like a sore thumb. Sitting in his recliner, writing this as sunset approaches, I realized that he was right on both accounts. He was a selfish old man, and he left behind someone who misses him. Before we get into the next story, I just wanted to take a moment to talk about today's sponsor, Rocket Money. And do you know how much your subscriptions really cost? Most Americans think that they spend around $80 a month on subscriptions, when the actual total is closer to $200. That's right, you could be wasting hundreds of dollars each month on subscriptions that you don't even know about. There's this app that I love using that takes care of that for me. It's called Rocket Money, formerly known as Truebill. So, how does Rocket Money work? The app shows all of your subscriptions in one place and then it cancels for you whatever you don't still want. It is super easy to use and allows you to keep track of all of your subscriptions. I personally couldn't remember some past subscriptions, so the app just helped out a ton for me. Rockin' Money can even find subscriptions that you didn't know that you were paying for. You even may find out that you've been double charged for a subscription. It's so easy to forget about one that you started years ago. So Rocket Money is helping you save money by finding them and canceling them for you. Now how do you cancel a subscription? All you have to do is press cancel and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. How easy is that? There's no confusion or roundabout way of canceling things, which makes Rocket Money that much more appealing. Get rid of useless subscriptions with Rocket Money now. Just go to rocketmoney.com slash mrcreeps. Seriously, it could save you hundreds of dollars per year. That's rocketmoney.com slash mrcreeps. Cancel your unnecessary subscriptions right now at rocketmoney.com slash mrcreeps. I lived in my neighborhood for most of my life. Lately, things have been really strange. Written by Corpse Child.
Terrence County, born and raised, proudly. A nice home high up in the mountains where you could look down upon the world, not given much of a single care in the world. With a sort of description like that, you would think that there'd be nothing to really complain about, would there? For the most part, you'd of course be right. My life was a nice and happy one through and through up until that point. But happy life or not, no one's without at least one ghost story or one traumatic event that ends up sticking with them for the rest of their lives, right? For me, it was when I was well into young adulthood. I hadn't moved out of my house yet, given that I was working a part-time job as a grocer while also going to community college. Believe it or not, it wasn't a bad job for what it was, and it allowed me to kick enough each month to mom and dad for rent to keep them off my back while not putting me in the hole. The people had a lick of sense and, for the most part, people seemed to like me. One night though, I found the case to be very different. One night, I was just trying to work as usual. It was about two and a half hours from closing time and I found that this one guy kept coming in the store. Now it wasn't entirely uncommon for something like this to happen. It's no exaggeration to say that for the most part, the place was basically dependent on repeat customers. Thing was, I at least knew said repeat customers. This guy however, I didn't know. The second thing out of sorts here was the fact that this guy also didn't actually buy anything. Finally, the biggest mark of all though was the fact that I couldn't see the guy's face. He wore a hood and hat with shades that pretty much concealed the majority of his face from view. That alone was enough to get him looked at suspiciously, not to mention being approached by employees and told to please remove the hood. But everyone else, all two other people there with me that night, I guess were too busy to notice or say anything to him about it. Fortunately, at the front counter where I was, there was little to no business, so I decided to go and say something to the guy. I approached him in the electronics aisle and asked, Hey there, sir. Is there anything that I can help you with? He snapped his head to look at me like a deer in headlights. I cleared my throat and repeated the question. He exchanged a glance back and forth between me and the shelf in front of him. He then lowered his head and walked away. Hey, wait, I exclaimed, running to catch up with him. He kept walking, and I was about to radio to one of the others that he was heading towards the pet aisle. When I found that he wasn't there anymore, I looked to my right and left, down the chemical and pharmaceutical aisles to see if he was in either of those and if I had just missed him. He wasn't. I then ran to see if how he had beat me to the pet aisle, but nope, nothing, he wasn't there either. What the? Where did he go? I started throwing my head around frantically. Where was he? He was right there, wasn't he? What happened? I was snapped back to attention when I felt a hand on my shoulder, causing me to whirl around and almost backhand my coworker in the face. Whoa, Christy, switch to decap, please. I let a sigh. Oh, Jesus, Frank, I'm sorry, I just... He held up his hand. Look, forget about it. Who the heck's watching the register? Oh, yeah, I'm on it. I turned and then hurried back to the front counter. When I got back to the front, I did my best to try and forget about the whole thing. 
It was nothing. Just a one in a million fluke that some guy kept coming in and out, and then he was gone in an instant. That is, until I saw him again. He was walking through the front door like he had the past several times that day. He walked again towards electronics, where I followed him. Sir, I called out, and just like last time, he looked at me and bolted for the pet aisle. I followed him again, only to again lose him in chemicals and pharmaceuticals. This time, I spent a good ten or so minutes trying to search for him, before I was once again approached from behind by Frank. This time, though, I noticed something else. Frank asked me who was watching the front of the store again, like he had the first time. I was about to turn and head back again when I noticed this. Hey, uh, didn't you say that last time? I asked him and he cocked his eyebrows at me. Last time, he asked, what are you talking about? Just a moment ago, didn't you tell me to head back to the front? He looked down for a moment before shaking his head at me. Oh, okay. Well, what about the guy in the hoodie? Did you see him? He shook his head again. Christy, I seriously think you need to switch to... Decaf, I asked, cutting him off. His eyebrow raised further. Uh, yeah, how did you... Because you said that too. For a moment, the two of us just looked dumbfounded at each other before he turned and walked away. I stood for a moment, too confused. The way that my head spun, I'm almost surprised that it didn't detach itself from my head and start flying around like a helicopter. I did see that, right? That guy was there both before and now, wasn't he? And why did Frank repeat himself? Does he know that he did? How come that he didn't see the guy? I turned in and was about to head back for the third time when a thought had occurred to me. I realized that the emergency back door was located just past the pet food aisle. I realized that he must have been using that to run out, to circle around and then come back inside. I figured that he must be using that door to sneak out however much of the store's merchandise by that point, and coming back in to grab more. With this in mind, I ran through and I looked out the door. The parking lot back there was empty. I looked around, using my phone as a flashlight to see if he was lingering around. And before you say anything, yes, I realized that what I was doing was dangerous. Checking out the back area alone in the middle of the night. Again though, it was normally a safe area to be in. Where stuff like that usually wasn't a huge concern. Plus I always did carry my butterfly knife on me in case I needed to use a blade to open packaging on one of the products. They don't supply us with box cutters for some reason. In any event, neither he nor anybody else was anywhere around. Figuring that I'd already missed him and that he had likely already made it back around to the front, I turned and ran back to the register. And sure enough, I was right. I made it back in time to catch him in at the electronics apartment again. I was about to confront him when I had stopped, opting instead to observe him at first. I figured that I could catch him in the act first, you know. While I watched him for at least 10 minutes and didn't see him stealing anything. In fact, I didn't see him doing anything either. Just standing there, shaking and looking around like an idiot. Finally, I decided to walk up. As I did so, I quietly radioed to Frank for backup. Be right there. 
said Frank's voice over the radio a little bit too loud. Unfortunately, this ended up giving my position away and he looked over to me again, spooked before turning and booking it. Oh no, you don't. In an instant, I watched him dart past the chemical into pharmacy aisles again, before losing sight of him. Maybe losing sight of him isn't the right word here. It might be more accurate to say that he just up and vanished. As in one instant, not a second, an instant, he was right there in front of me, maybe just a foot or two ahead of me in the next. He wasn't anymore. And keep in mind that he had at least another three feet to go before he could have reached the door. How the heck then did he keep getting outside? And not only that, why did he keep running away from me every time he saw me if he wasn't stealing anything? Was he some sort of wanted man? Okay, yeah, that might explain his apparent need to cover his face. But that still didn't explain why he kept coming into the store, or how he was doing it either. I mean, we had cameras, and he did know that, right? If he was on the run, he was essentially shooting himself in the foot by continuing to come into the store, wasn't he? Face covering or no, he was still there. At least I thought he was. And he was still continuing to come in and out, even using the same exact route through the store each time. I mean, who is this guy and what's his deal? I was broken from my thoughts again by Frank, placing his head on my shoulder. I whirled around and reared back again. Whoa, Christy, switched to decaf. The words honestly jumped from my mouth before I even realized it. A sort of knee-jerk reaction almost. Frank stared back at me, shocked. Uh, yeah, I uh, guess. Hey, wait, who's? Watching the front, his eyes widened. That's when I realized that something was very wrong here. I was dead on the money again. For the third time in a row, I had predicted what he was going to say and when. Not only that, it was in the exact same spot as the last two times before. What in the heck is this? But Frank was turning to head back into the office when I stopped him. Wait. Huh? He asked, turning back around. Listen, have you noticed anything, I don't know, off lately? His eyes glanced around for a moment before pursing his lips and shaking his head. Not really, he replied. Well, outside of you abandoning the register when we still have another, he paused and looked at his watch. Two hours before, we close up for the night. I'm sorry, just, I've been having to. I stopped then, a realization washing over me. Hold on a second. Did you just say that we still had another two hours before closing? Yeah, why? His eyes were bugged out at me with his eyebrows raised. Show me. Hesitantly, he rotated his wrist to show me his watch, and sure enough he was right. It was only 8.15. The same time that it was when I first started to chase the guy. Now I was alarmed. How had no time passed? The three times alone I wasted trying to catch the idiot should have at least burned through another 30 or maybe 45 minutes. Yet not a single minute had passed apparently. I was speechless. Staring dull-eyed in horror at Frank's watch. Frank must have seen the color draining from my face because the next thing that he asked me was if I was feeling ill. I almost said yes, truth be told. Instead, I looked up to him and replied that I was fine. Uh, listen, um, you think you would let me take a look at the cameras? 
He stared quizzically at me. I'll explain it in the office, just to please. Um, sure, yeah, I guess. He tapped the button on his walkie and asked the other associate, Harold, if he would come up to the register while he and I were in the office. Harold replied, albeit not at all enthusiastically, that he would and I followed Frank into the office. Frank closed the door behind us and began pulling up the CCTV footage. For about 15 minutes, Frank had scrolled through the hours of footage until I stopped him where I had seen the guy walking in. There, I exclaimed, pointing at the screen. Frank froze the footage where the guy walked in. That guy's been in and out of here several times now. I had him rewind the footage to prove my point. Huh? He said. You see it too, right? Yeah, what the heck? How come you didn't say anything to him, especially with the hood on? I did, Frank. Three times and every time, he took off and vanished. Watch. I took the keyboard, something that I'm admittedly not supposed to do, and I forwarded the footage up to the time that I had confronted him. The footage played and we were watched where I had confronted the guy and he took off. I then switched the cameras to the chemical and pharmacy aisles where I kept losing him. This, however, is where things somehow got even weirder. Not only did the guy just basically poof out of existence on camera, but that was also where the footage across all feeds had ended, at 8.13pm. I tried forwarding further to show the fact that I had been trying to chase him three times now, but that was it. Everything had stopped at 813 But, but, I stammered, staring slack-jawed at the CCTV screen. What? asked Frank. Why want to go any further? I chased the guy three different times. Christian, he began sighing. I think you've been working too many night shifts here. Oh, don't patronize me, Frank. I know what I saw. He held his hands up defensively. I kept mashing the forward button like a madman before I felt Frank's hand on my shoulder stopping me. Oh, Christy, honey, why don't you take an early night? I looked at him, and he looked confused, though obviously not as much as me. I exchanged glances between him and the monitor. Uh, but I'm telling you, I... Christy, he said, cutting me off, giving me a look that told me I wasn't going to make my case any more believable by continuing to push it. I sighed then, stumping my shoulders and stepping away from the panel. Go home, Christy, seriously, you've been working too hard. I nodded, grabbing my purse and jacket. I'll tell Jimmy that you got sick or had a family emergency or something. Me and Harold will finish off the night. I nodded my head suddenly. If I'm going to be perfectly honest, I likely wouldn't have minded the early pass to go home. He had a point for one thing about me working a lot of night shifts. He and I both knew Jimmy the manager himself probably would have told me the exact same thing in this instance. Another thing was that part of me wondered if maybe Frank was right. That maybe I really was, just suffering from overexhaustion. But of course, at the same time, I knew dang well that I wasn't. Something funky was going on here and for some reason, it wasn't being picked up by Frank or even the cameras. Unfortunately, with no way of actually being able to prove this, I had no choice but to do as Frank said and punch the clock for the night. Frank and I walked out of the office and he split off to the right where he had met me at before, 
toward the pet aisle while I went back toward the front. As I was trudging dejectedly to the counter to the time clock, I saw something that made me freeze and do a double take. Harold wasn't at the counter. I ran over to look for him, thinking maybe he had ducked down behind it or something. But nope, nothing. Harold, I called out. Nothing. I bust my radio. Harold, where are you? Nothing. Harold, where are you? You're supposed to be watching me. I stopped. I almost didn't catch it. It was almost a split-second thing that, had I not looked up right then when I had, frantically looking for Harold, I would have missed it. It was the guy again, walking hurriedly past the counter towards electronics. He had made it further than maybe the other end of the front counter, before I had zipped out from around and ran for him. Hey you, I called and he didn't stop. He was about to keep walking when I darted for him, roughly grabbing his shoulder. Hey, I'm talking to you. I got no further though when I started to feel something tingling in my body. A strange, almost synthetic sort of a supersonic vibration shooting through my hand that traveled all the way up to my arm. This vibration then quickly became a sort of stinging sensation that screamed all throughout my body, inside and out. My entire body, skin, muscles, organs and all, all felt like it was being liquefied. The process was excruciatingly painful, yet when I tried to scream it felt that much more like my body was a piece of paper that was being torn in half. I did scream though, and it seemed to echo as if I were in a tunnel or something. Well, sort of. It's confusing, and believe me that my head hurts even now writing about it here. But I guess the best way to describe it is to imagine screaming into a tunnel, like I had mentioned before. But that tunnel then somehow splits itself in every direction, both possible and impossible, with the sound still traveling through each of them endlessly as they do so. And then imagine that. Not only do the tunnels not stop dividing in all directions, but the sounds within them start to then distort in every way, both imaginable and unimaginable, all at the same time. And you hear them all at the same time. I started to then see these sort of tunnels, I guess you could call them. They were these clear almost jelly-looking funnels that twisted and wriggled as they constantly split apart within this dark expanse. I looked around, heart frozen in my chest. What was any of this? Where did it come from? And how did it even get here? Were questions that I couldn't begin to muster any kind of willpower to try to ask even myself. I watched as more of the tunnels diverged, each one making my scream sound less and less like me. Less and less human, in fact. I then looked down at my body. I was unharmed, despite being near certain that I had taken at least 1,000 fire pokers simultaneously all over my body multiple times. When I went to move my hand, however, something even weirder had happened. Similar to the way that my screaming had produced all these different tunnels, the movement of my hand had produced tunnels as well. This time, though, I saw me inside of them. Each new and diverting tunnel had a version of me, bringing my hands up to my face and widening my eyes in pure shock. And just like the ones with the screams, these two appeared to have these images of me distort more and more with each new division. Holy mother of... 
My frantic train of thoughts was further derailed when I then began to hear that very same thought. Yes, I said it. I heard my thought the same way that I heard the scream and saw the action with my hands. The same exact effect happened with my thoughts too. Then from well, somewhere in the vast mix of nothing and everything around me, I could hear this deep and baritone voice blast out, cutting through somehow all of the other noises from the tunnels around me. Concentrate, the voice said. Concentrate, I cried out, hysterical by this point. Like the scream, this too was painful to do, causing me to scream again. Both sounds then joined the never-ending, ever-reaching junction of tunnels around me. Concentrate, Christy, it replied. How do they know my name? Who is this? More tunnels formed, each one distorting the internal questions, some morphing them into different languages and others into not even languages at all, rather mumbles and grunts. Concentrate on what? I cried out painfully again. What is this? Where am I? Concentrate, it bellowed. As long as you continue to panic, you will only create more divisions. Divisions? What are you talking about? Look in front of you. I did. What you're seeing are the microscopic divisions in time itself. With each movement, action, or thought that you make, more divisions will occur, allowing for every possible way for said action, movement, or thought to be perceived. This was obviously the point where I learned the most unabridged, raw version of words like confused, lost, flabbergasted, and baffled. Being honest, after this experience, I actually spent time trying to actually invent a new word for such a thought or feeling. The thing is, I kind of knew it then too. Such would just never accurately capture what it really was that I felt in that very moment. Lost in whatever bizarro limbo or dimension that I was in. What am I supposed to concentrate on? Where you were before all this, bellowed the voice, proudly having heard my thoughts as another tunnel, or I guess division was created from them. What, you mean like the store? If that was where you were before you breached, then yes. Breached, I asked, feeling no more knowledgeable than I had last time. I, I don't. Just concentrate and you can re-enter your normal plane. I stood there. I didn't know how I could concentrate on anything. For one thing, I had a hard enough time doing that without whatever the heck all this was going on around me. Another thing, I couldn't even think without literally hearing my own thoughts get jumbled up until they aren't even recognizable. And then there's the fact that I just didn't understand what was going on. You're not concentrating chastised the voice. I, I can't. I closed my eyes and covered my ears. I just, I can't, there's too much. You can do it, Christy. You must or else you'll continue to divide within here until you've atrophied into nothing. What? I cried. That one, I believe, rang out the loudest and created more divisions than most, or all of the others before it. This, of course, meant that it was much more impossible to focus or concentrate on a thing. You must clear your mind, concentrating on where you were before and what led you to this moment. My breathing was panicked. My heart on the brink of just giving the heck out by that point. Not only did I not know who the heck was talking to me or what was going on, 
How the heck did I know that what they were talking about would even work? They said if I didn't though, that I would be done for. I closed my eyes again and took a deep breath. Focus on where I was before, they said. What was I doing before? Where was I before? I strained to remember, but it was then that I began to feel the draining sensation spreading throughout my body. It wasn't painful per se, but rather, it felt as though something was being taken out of me. The feeling of fading away. Atrophying. I was being erased. Concentrate. You panic now and you're done. Focus on where I was before. But where was I? The store. I was in the store. And what was I doing there? My mind felt overheated, like a computer chip about to fry. Still though, I kept my eyes shut tight. I tried to think about what exactly it was that I was doing in the store. I remembered that I was, I was. The time clock. I was about to clock out for the night. Why though? Because Frank said that I needed to, said that I had been working too hard. And what led you to that though? You really ought to switch to decaf. I said aloud unwittingly. I opened my eyes to see the division cease moving around in the black void. I could hear the sound of my voice trying to distort itself the way the others before had it, but seemingly was stuck or caught by something. From there, my memory of moments before flooded back to me, seemingly causing the distortions to go abruptly silent. The divisions twisted and knotted together before forming this bright ball in the center of the void. You've almost done it. Concentrate on the very moment that led you here. Frank said to switch to decaf. Why did he feel the need to say that? Well, I kept running into him in front of the office. But what kept bringing me there? Because I kept chasing me. And then it hit me. The guy in the black hoodie. I kept running into Frank because I was chasing the guy in the hoodie who kept coming into the store and disappearing. My eyes opened, then to see a glowing white sphere. The light from it wasn't so much bright though, as it was spectral. It was glowing, yet I could look directly at it without it hurting my eyes at all. Everything was quiet. Everything was still. I brought my hands to my face again. I screamed and shouted again, and nothing happened. Hey, I called out. While I could see no one else was around me in the void that I was in, I still kind of half expected the voice from before to reply somehow. Ironically enough, it still caught me a bit off guard when it actually did. The breach is being sealed, it thundered. Okay, I stuttered. I shook my head. So okay, can you tell me what the heck is going on? I mean, I was just about to get off work when... Calm yourself, it interjected. I took a deep breath while it continued. You stumbled into what is known to very, very few as a breach. A shift in the tapestry of time and dimension. And this was the point in which both my mind and heart seemed to just freeze at the same time. I still managed to remember what it was that he actually had said to me. But how would I know if I made a lick of sense to me, either back then or now? Time, you may or may not know, is a straight line. What most won't realize is that it too has dimensions to it. It's as three-dimensional as the earth itself. This, however, is something that's not typically seen by the ordinary eye. Also, like the crust of earth, 
time itself occasionally undergoes its own seismic shafts. When this happens, cracks will form and on occasions, individuals like yourself end up slipping through these cracks and causing a breach to form. Okay, I replied hesitantly. So then, how is this shift or whatever caused? I mean, there's a way to prevent them or predict them, right? Well, let me answer that with my own question. Can you prevent or determine the cause of an earthquake? No, I guess not. Other than when something big causes the tectonic plates to shift, like construction equipment or something, and we have seismographs to at least tell us when it happens. This is true, but now take that and apply it to this. Time is as natural a force as the elements. Therefore, it too undergoes its own processes that are beyond the abilities of mortal beings to control. I began to feel dizzy again. My vision on the orb blurred a bit. That, it continued not noticing me, or at least not seeming to, is why when you moved, it made sounds or thought, the divisions were created. Further rips in the fabric of reality. It has that effect on those that cause a breach. It almost took you too, as it has many others. Others? My tongue began to go numb. Well, yes, others who didn't make it out of the breach. Much like the soul that you were chasing earlier. And it would seem that it's made its mark on you as well. What? Don't. You need to conserve what you have. The more energy you expend, the more of yourself you lose here in the breach. You've managed to calm it, but the shift is still in effect. Unfortunately, the effects it's already had on you are irreversible. But you can still come out of this with the rest of yourself intact. What do I have to do? With each passing second, I felt like my body was having all of its innards sucked out through a straw or something. Come forward and step into the orb, the sealed time breach. You'll be returned to the point that you were when you slept through the shaft. I wanted to ask more questions, obviously, but I knew at the same time that it was right. Who or whatever it was, was a god, I guess. The longer I lingered in the void, the more of myself I continued to lose. With no other alternative, I went forward into the orb. As soon as my hand broke through, I saw for a split second the front of the store before a flash of white light had splashed across my eyes. This time, I did actually end up having to shield my eyes. In fact, this time it actually felt like my eyes were still burning, even after I had closed them as tightly as I could. Luckily, this only lasted about two or three seconds before. I was able to open my eyes again to see that I was in front of the electronics aisle again. I looked around. The store looked normal enough. I reached out and felt along the countertop of my register. It was solid, metallic, just like usual. I began to walk around. Everything was quiet, as quiet as it had been before, save for the god-awful music that was playing over the radio. My legs were wobbly. I almost fell, managing to catch myself on the countertop. I stumbled, then between the pharmacy and the chemical aisles. Everything looked fine. Everything was quiet, and everything was normal. I was back. I was startled again when I felt a hand rest on my shoulder from behind me. I snapped around to find Frank, and this time when I reared back, it was a bit delayed. Hey Christy, it's just me. It's time to close up. 
My face went from one of exhausted alarm to one of confusion. Seeing this, Frank held up his watch. It read 10.05. Harold came down from the pet aisle and walked past us to the office. Uh, closing time? I slurred. He raised his eyebrows at me. Yeah, he said nervously. You okay? You look pale. I didn't respond. Apparently, whatever look I had on my face spoke enough for me because the next thing I knew, he was telling me to take a couple of days off like he had before. This time, I accepted that invitation with no rebuttal, nor would I have challenged it if I did have the energy to speak. It was during my little vacation from work that I was taken by my folks to see a neurologist. They ran tests on me extensively too, but in a few weeks they still came back with the results that there was nothing wrong. When asked about my sudden lapse in energy or my difficulty in being able to speak, they had suggested a sudden onset of narcolepsy. They told me the best thing to help was a healthy diet, plenty of rest and to not overexert myself. As you can imagine, none of that helped, then or now. I know of course why they don't too. Whatever happened in that time shift or whatever, the breach, it's irreversible. It's all part of my being that were distorted and erased. In spite of all of this, my story does get a little better. I went back to work a few weeks later with my time with the neurologist even allowing for paid medical leave, where I was assigned a limited register duty, basically meaning that all I would have to do is stand at the register and look pretty. As well as this, I was granted extra break periods to not overexhaust myself. My studies had become a challenge for me, but I still managed to pass the semester with a decent enough average. This was last year though. I still have trouble trying to do a whole lot physically. At times it feels like I've aged a lot more than I should have. Possibly literally. A few months later I started noticing wrinkles and liver spots in certain places when I looked in the mirror. Over time I noticed more and more of them progressively. Let's say this, that when the incident had happened I was 27, looking more like 19 or 20. Now I'm 28, looking closer to 38. My folks, and yes I'm still with them, think that it may be some sort of stress. The thing is, I'm not stressed. I mean, things are even easier for me now than what they had ever been, both at work as well as with classes. No, it's not stress. It was one shift. The one night shift that almost wouldn't end, and one that almost ended me. I worked on a secret military project to create nuclear families. I just woke up. Written by Trash Atia. Our family started where other families typically do not. Inside a laboratory. I did not have a name. I did not have an age. I did not have hobbies. I awoke as a shell, as a valuable member of the Nestor family. I don't remember feeling anything except the ice-cold graze of tiles under my bare toes. It was strange waking up inside a body that I knew was mine and yet it also wasn't. My throat was still raw from her screams and my chest had ached. My stomach had trying to projectile into my throat. I sensed all of her panic. All of her pain. 
her fear. It burned inside me, but I was an empty shell incapable of feeling such emotion. I was not afraid like her. I did not panic. I was ready to follow my orders. At seven hours old, I was activated exactly three minutes before walking out under blinding light, and I still found it hard to balance myself with her lack of strength. She must have put up a fight for her body to be as weak as it was. Her memories were fading, spiraling down in a growing abyss in my mind, but I remembered splinters of her ending. I remembered the metal rod being forced inside her skull and the electroshocks rattling through her. The pain was still very much real inside me. It was raw and prickling, suppressed to the back of my mind, but I could not feel it. I could not feel her yearning for someone that she had lost, someone that she desperately had wanted back. Other me had a goal to find someone. That was all that I knew. Unlike others, she was not dragged from her bed or kidnapped on her way home from school. No, other me gave herself up. Step forward, Nestor family. The woman's voice was gravelly through the intercom and I found my body automatically following commands. I was not the only one. There were others next to me. Brother, brother, and sister. And I was also sister. Like me, they were freshly emptied bodies fashioned into perfection. We did not have names yet. Names were given out on dispatch. I had woken up as sister. The electroshocks which had racked my body and brain, hollowing my other self out and turning her into me, said that I was sister. There were no other names. If there were, I was to be disposed of immediately. If even a single splinter of a name had appeared on my lips, or I began to unravel, I was to be destroyed like other failures. They did exist. I wasn't plastic or metal. I still had a human mind. I still had my senses and in those first initial hours of my new life, I heard screams down the hallway from my room. Not all potentials could be subjugated and processed. The ones who fought against programming were swiftly taken care of. Luckily that did not happen. I was a part of the Nestor family. I had a purpose. My name was Sister. 18 years old, eldest of the Nestor children. Book smart but lacking in common sense. Stubborn, kind-hearted. I enjoyed watching television and getting to know my neighbors. Can you confirm your names, please? A bright light hit my face. I did not blink. I didn't need to. Unlike my other self who hated how intense the light was, it did not faze me. Sister... I sat, staring forwards. The others followed suit. Brother. The two guys standing on either side of me spoke in sync when the light had hit them. To my left, the young woman standing shoulder to shoulder with me had scorched hands and lacerations on her wrist. My sister's lip trembled slightly, curving into silent screams pulled from her lungs. Her old self was still lingering. She was fresh. Not even an hour old. Sister. Her voice was cracked and wrong, like it was being forced from her lips. 
If I had thoughts of my own, I might have suspected that she was awake, but I wasn't allowed to think or speculate. Once we had given our names and confirmed our model numbers, the four of us were tested. Having already been equipped with the necessary abilities to carry out my orders, I was quick on my feet when told to turn to the left and to the right. When I was shot at, my body reacted automatically, disarming the guard standing next to me and hitting the cardboard target, risking a sharp glance to my left. I allowed myself to look at my siblings properly, but there was nothing of them to drink in. I was looking at empty and unblinking eyes, focused on lumen figures, testing our reaction times. If there ever had been something, it had been away hours before inside the room with the bleeping machines. We had an audience along with the people in black testing our activation code. The word slipped inside my mind, easily slicing its way through my thoughts. Once said, my body was theirs, my thoughts puppeteered. Standing in the middle was the only silhouette that I had recognized. I knew the man from her memories. I knew the cruel curve of his lips went and he bent over her and forced the metal rod in further, reveling in her choked scream. The crunch of the end, splitting her skull apart and sending her body writhing against Velcro. The man was more shadow than human, his identity hidden in overexposed light. I did see what was pinched between his thumb and finger. It was a small device, a coil or a spring. He didn't explain what it was, but he didn't need to. I already knew what it was. It was the device buried inside of her heads. If we failed to follow orders given, the device would be activated. It wasn't much of a threat. You can't threaten a mindless shell incapable of thoughts of their own, but you can stand triumphant, reminding them of their loss of humanity and thought, their free will. Rolling the device between his thumb and finger, the man cleared his throat. Nest your children, he said. Are you ready to meet mother and father? Before we could react, he took pleasure in saying that our activation code one final time, bringing my already empty thoughts to a standstill. Slowly, my mouth stretched into a smile which split my lips apart and I spoke in childlike glee. Next to me, the others did the same. Mommy. And I went again. No fair. The sun was in my eyes. Tell him, Jane. Ah, there is no sun. It was too cold to be playing baseball, but I wasn't going to miss watching my siblings murdering each other over a stupid game. My brother's arguing tore me from the newspaper that I had been reading, sitting on the wooden steps leading into our yard. I had been reading about the poor kitty who had gotten itself stuck up in a tree. Luckily, it was saved. But I couldn't stop thinking about how scared the poor little thing must have been. It had rained the night before. Now, I usually enjoyed the rain. I liked to sit in bed after reading the daily newspaper and pampering my face. I was getting closer to becoming friends with Connor Aislane. We were at the talking stage, which was better than nothing. Though I had to admit that my younger brother was closer to him. We had a bat. Whoever successfully brought Connor Aisling through our door had complete ownership of the family television for a month. 
which was a huge deal. All I could think about was the bed as I lifted my head, my gaze flashing across our yard where Peter stood, bat in hand. Johnny was pitching and Jane was sitting several feet away, her head buried in the latest classical novel to catch her eye. My sister was just like me. She never missed an opportunity to watch our brothers at daily baseball games. And I liked to join in usually, but it was far too cold. The ice-cold breeze had been blowing my hair back, which was annoying. Mother did tell me not to mess it up. She made it clear that I had to look my best for Connor Aislinn. I had to wrap myself up in Mother's fluffy coat and a thick, pink scarf to bear the brunt of fall bleeding into winter. It's not like Peter and Johnny cared about the weather. Both sporting short-sleeved shirts, they were bound to get cold. I made a mental note to tell Mother. At least Peter was wearing a baseball cap. I focused my attention on him, watching him miss the ball again. And in true Peter fashion, he was already stamping the ground and blaming his bad swing on the wind, trying to snatch his hat. Peter was always the sibling that I paid attention to the most, and I wasn't sure why. Looking at him, I was always searching for something which wasn't there, but I felt like it was. Like looking through a foggy mirror and trying to find a face. There was one thing bothering me. I didn't remember that Peter ever had glasses but I could have sworn that I had accompanied him to the optometrist. Our town didn't even have an optometrist, only a private doctor. However, I definitely have very faint memories of standing in front of Peter and waving around a pair of thick framed glasses. I remember his scowl trying not to be a smile, though my brother's eyes were perfect. He had never had glasses or had mentioned them. Huh. The thought didn't stay with me for long. I shook it away with a chuckle, turning my attention to Jane, who had thrown down her book and jumped up and down when the edge of Peter's bat had finally sent the ball across the yard. Johnny's mouth was slack for a moment, his eyes wide. Peter never hit the ball. The boys called it baseball, but there weren't enough players to have a proper game. Instead, the two of them took turns pitching and then batting and running a lap around our yard. Peter seemed baffled himself. He only snapped out of it when Jane cupped her mouth laughing. Run, you idiot. Peter threw himself into a sprint. He froze, Johnny yelled. Surely that counts for something, right? Come on, he never hits. I cut my own mouth. My hands were ice cold. Wet. Cut him some slack. Johnny twisted to me as expression said in a mocking scowl. Stay out of it, Wendy. I was on the edge of my seat, literally. Johnny took the opportunity to dive for the ball before Peter could complete his lap. So yeah, it was kind of like baseball. Both of them were far too competitive, however, and ended up crashing into each other. I bit back a hiss. That looked painful. The two of them landed with twin oofs on grass thick with mildew, and I was giggling along with them, when footsteps on hardwood had alerted me of mother's presence. I had already sensed her coming minutes before she set foot outside, but the game had taken my attention. Jumping to my feet, I nodded at my mother. She wasn't smiling as usual, 
her expression frozen into permanent impatience. She did smile, but it was rare. Mother only smiled when either of us reported getting closer to Connor Aislinn. We had all worked hard to get to know the family. Mom had gifted them casserole and freshly made pies. Dad had befriended Connor's father through their mutual job, and my siblings and I got close to him at school. In Mother's hands was a casserole. The smell gathered in my nose and throat, and it smelled wonderful. I did notice the sauce looked thicker than usual. Was Mother trying a new recipe? I hope so. Wendy, darling. Mom spoke in a soft breath. Did you invite Connor Aislinn to dinner like I had asked? I noticed your grip on the casserole dish tighten. Her hands were quivering a little. Mother's hands had never shook. Connor Aislinn is a skinwalker, honey. He must be dealt with accordingly. I nodded at my gaze on Jane's ponytail being whipped around in the sharp breeze. Yes, I invited him. I said smoothly. Connor said that he couldn't attend due to homework. I turned to her with a grin. I did ask to join, but he seemed rather content with being with his own company. Mother inclined her head. Oh, well, isn't that fascinating, hmm? The Aislin boy would rather do homework than try my casserole. He'll come tomorrow, I murmured, spinning around and wrapping my arms around Mother. She smelled like strong cleaning product and something I couldn't quite name. It was a potent stink easily snaking its way into my throat. He must try your casserole. It is to die for. Mother's lips twitched into the slightest of smiles, but her hands were visibly shaking now, her entire body rattling and I had no idea why. Of course, she pushed me away gently. Dinner's almost ready. Please tell your brothers and sister. Was mother taking medication? I had wondered, but I didn't think so. Maybe she was nervous or sick, but our family was never sick. Nodding, I cut my mouth with my hands, which were wet. It's funny, it wasn't raining yet. Looking into the sky, clouds were gathering thick and gray on the horizon, but no sign of rain. Dinner's ready. I shouted to the others, and when they protested, I couldn't resist a laugh. Darling, can you come and help me set the table? Mother asked. She was already backing away, the smell of the casserole moving with her. Wendy! Peter jumped to his feet, shoving the other two aside playfully. He held up his baseball cap, waving it. It's your turn. I sent Mother a helpless look, and I expected her to be strict. I expected her to order me inside. After all, it was my duty to help Mother set the table and prepare dinner. But instead, however, Mother stepped back with a smile which didn't suit her. I had never seen her smile like that. Go and play, Becca, she sighed. And her voice was dreamy, eyes unfocused. I will do it myself, and yes, you can use the iPad. Her words struck me for a moment. Becca, that name sounded foreign. Both of the words did. Mother let us watch television before and after school. I wasn't sure what the second word was. It just sounded as alien as Becca. Mother had never said either of those words before. 
The questioning, however, was gone before I could fully register it. I gave Mother an awkward hug before she had headed back inside and hurried to catch up to the others. Peter passed me the bat and I took my position on the marking that the boys had made themselves with white paint. Taking slow steps back, Johnny's lips curled into a smirk. I thought you didn't want to play, he laughed. Isn't it too cold for you? I rolled my eyes taking position. Johnny cocked a brow. He mimed going in slow motion. Oh, you're cold. Do you want me to go as slow as possible? I lifted the bat like I was going to throw it at him, and he burst out laughing. Johnny's laugh was like a hyena, insufferable. Come on, Wendy, Jane yelled. Miss, Peter started chanting, hissing in protest when Jane had shoved him. Ah, Jesus, you've got pointy elbows. Johnny was grinning. I'm not sure what it was about his smug smile, but it only motivated me to actually try. Instead of playing casually, I had situated myself into a proper position, digging my sneakers in the ground and tightening my grip on the bat. I was aware of Johnny pitching the ball and seeing it flying towards me, but I didn't move. Something inside me froze and then impact. Pain exploded. A neutron star collision going off in front of my eyes. I felt my body jolt from the pain before I hit the ground. First on my butt and then dropping onto my back. My head was spinning, the thoughts spiraling. A new pain had started up, crawling around the back of my skull. I could hear my siblings shouting my name, and I opened my mouth to say that I was okay, that I hadn't broken any bones when... Color. I can't quite explain the sensation. One moment I was staring at a sky which I was used to, and I was staring at the reality I believed in. Birds flying across the sky in trails of white clouds signaling airplanes. And then I was seeing color. I was seeing the bright blue sky. I was seeing trees blossoming in fall beauty, smothered in rich browns and reds and dark greens. Blinking rapidly, I struggled to take in explosions of color bleeding into my vision. Color. I had never noticed that I had been living in black and white until I was seeing color. It was enough to bring tears to my eyes and sliding down my cheeks. But I wasn't supposed to cry. I never cried. And yet, my cheeks were wet and my lips had tasted like salt. I was half aware that I was covering my nose and mouth where the pain was which had triggered mesmerizing color. My hands. When I stared at them, they were slick red. I could see my own blood for the first time running down my fingers and staining my palms. It dripped from my nose in rivulets, ruining the dress that I didn't know was pink. I had never stopped to look at my dress, or my pale blue sneakers, or locks of sandy-colored hair trickling in front of my face. Before I could fully understand and register what I was seeing, more pain had blossomed, worse than before. It was enough to send me flopping back onto the ground. My teeth gritted around a screech clawing at my throat. I was frowning at an oddly shaped cloud before my surroundings seemed to bleed around me. Vivid colors clashing together into one perceivable vicious noise inside my head. Squeezing my eyes shut, I waited for it all to disappear. Everything, the color, the pain, everything. 
Instead, though, I found myself in the back of a car, like father's, but it was a lot different. For one, the shadow in the front seat, the identity that I couldn't see, didn't have to drive manually. Instead, the car seemed to do it for him. My head was pressed against the glass of the window and I was panting, my chest heaving. I couldn't breathe. I felt like I was choking like there was no oxygen in the air. I was having a panic attack. No. Pain struck again, this time forcing me to remember who I was, what I was and where I had come from. The laboratory inside a Markham facility. Room 12 of the Nestor family. The body which used to think for herself and have free will. She was having a panic attack. The girl who used to have this body before I was activated. Please, she spoke with a twisted tongue. My old self drew her head back, slamming her hands into the glass. Just, just let me go in there, she whispered. All I need to do is get to the back rooms, the labs. He'll be in there. The figure in the front seat sighed. I glimpsed a bright red hoodie and dark hair pinned back by Ray-Bans. Are you crazy? He twisted around to face her, his lips curled into a scowl. No. He prodded his seat with emphasis. We wait until the barrier is down, and then we get out of here. The town is crawling with their people. The school isn't safe anymore. They've thrown half of the faculty into Lydia. Oh, sure. Her tone was bitter. Run away, that's what you love to do. He scoffed. Oh, yeah. I am so sorry for wanting to get away from all of this. I was startled then by emotions flooding inside her. Anger, frustration, pain. What? So you just want to leave him? He groaned, tipping his head back. It's better than waiting to get taken. Have some perspective, yeah. I'm sorry, Kane. The boy was quick to follow her. What? Hey, stop. He grabbed her, yanking her back. You do realize if you go in there, you're not coming back out. He spluttered at a laugh. We already lost half our classmates to them. Do you really want to join them? She wasn't giving up and I don't think she was thinking straight either. I can get him out of there. The guy or Kane folded his arms. His tone softened. He's gone. They fabricated a tetanus shot and took half of the seniors in. Stop saying that. What do you want me to say? Kane took a step towards her and then another. His words came out in globules of saliva hitting her face. His words twisted and turning her gut. Do you want me to sugarcoat it? It's not too late, she said. They took him. They took him yesterday. If I can get in there. Oh, please, he curled his lip. I'd rather they throw him in Lydia. A small voice and other me twisted around to see a pair of fluffy slippers thump onto concrete. A little girl with dark hair and sleepy eyes blinked at them. Are you fighting again? Kane rolled his eyes. Why would we be fighting? We're all fine here. Cotton candy and rainbows. Other me shoved him. She's five, she said through her teeth. Hurrying over to the little girl, my other self, the nameless shell shoved to the back of my head, took the little girl's hands. Oh, where are your gloves? The little girl's lips pricked. The fairies took them. 
Despite the fear eating up her insides and twisting her inside out, my other self laughed. Okay, I believe you. She chuckled, and in a more serious tone. Kane is going to look after you for a while, okay? Sniffling, she tried to blink away the tears, but they kept coming. And I'm going to get your brothers back. Do you understand me? I'm going to get your big brother back from the monster, sweetie. I promise. Kane hissed out. Wait, since when was I a babysitter? My other self shot him a glare. It's only until I'm back, I'm sure you can deal with a five-year-old. Really? The little girl whispered, her eyes filling with hope. Her small hands trembled. But Kane said my brother isn't coming back. Well, Kane is being an idiot, she said, and the girl giggled. You're going to be a good girl for him, okay? Her tone was suddenly firm, and when the little girl wrapped her arms around her, she had tightened her grab. Allie, do you remember what I told you earlier? Repeat it back to me. Allie's eyes widened. If mommy or daddy or anyone from your school knock on the door, I have to stay extra, extra quiet. Uh-huh. And Kane is going to be with you. My old self nodded at the boy who pulled a face. Aren't you? He blew a raspberry. Like I'm going to abandon a five-year-old. Better yet, my best friend's little sis. Allie shook her head, before whispering in her ear. I don't like Kane's boo-boo. My other self's gaze flashed to the bloody bandage wrapped around the boy's head. No matter how many times he tried to hide it by pulling up his hood, it was always there, edges tinted with red and reminding me that there was a way out. Kane has, he has a bad headache. Allie didn't look too convinced. She got closer, her eyes darkening. Is Kane like mommy and daddy? He's okay, my other self said breathlessly. Allie nodded. Is it all going to be over soon? My other self didn't reply. Instead, she hugged Allie again, before letting the little girl climb into the back seat. You're crazy, Kane said, climbing into the driver's seat. He saluted me with two fingers. I'll make sure to make awkward eye contact with you across the street when you've been assimilated into your new family, and to remind this shell of yourself wiped of all you were. She sent him the finger. Well, if I'm going to be erased completely, yes. It was me who stole your GTA game. I knew it. Watching him go, she made sure to smile until Kane was reversing away, headlights blinding her. When she was alone, my other self turned and started to run, pushing herself into a sprint, her sneakers pounding against tarmac. Wendy! Jane's frightened voice sliced into my thoughts, snapping me out of it. Wendy, are you okay? My vision went fuzzy after that. The backdrop of an abandoned parking lot bleeding away, making way for blue sky. No, a black and white sky. Blue, black and white. Blue, black and white. It was like my perception was faltering. I thought the colors would leave, but they stayed, exploding once more. And this time, drenching my siblings looming over me and bringing them to life with the rest of the world. I didn't know Peter's hair was red until right then. Johnny's hair was more of a chestnut shade, while Jane was a blonde like me. Their faces startled me for the first time, especially when I took a moment to fully take them in. Their expressions were frozen, 
seemingly varying between three, joyful, horrified, and content. They weren't blinking either. Everything about them seemed forced and robotic, from the way that Peter reached out his hand for me to take, and Jane stroking her hands through my hair. Jane, her mane of gold locks hanging to my face, was grinning wildly despite her eyes wide with fear. There were scratch marks on her arms, and the buttons on her dress collar had been ripped off. Peter's fingernails were scarlet. There were stains down his shirt. Johnny's cheeks were smeared in varying shades of the same color, but they weren't the only ones. And my hands weren't just covered in fresh blood. They had been stained in tainted scarlet. The dress I adored was torn and splattered in greenish stains mixed with sharp red. Leaning forward, Johnny's breath smelled rancid. Hello, he flicked my temple, and three colors suddenly flashed in vivid clarity in front of my eyes. Blue, green, and yellow. I was looking at my siblings underneath the perfect blue sky. I was seeing their faces, but I could sense something different. My hand strapped down in front of me. Something sharp and heavy was sticking into the back of my head triggering my mouth to open and close, try and attempt to scream and fail. Again, a woman's voice slid into my brain, causing my body to jolt. I felt them. I felt each and every electroshock rattling through me and scorching my hands. I felt each one tear apart my sanity and my will to live, to fight, to keep hold of my name. I screamed until blood dripped from my nose and mouth. I screamed until I was so weak that I couldn't lift my head, but she kept going, again and again and again and again. I don't know how long it had been before the word, sister, left my mouth filled with blood. Nine women in white surrounding me nodded and helped me off with the bed. I was pushed towards the door. My feet felt strange and grazing ice cold tiles. I flinched at the feeling for a moment before remembering that I wasn't allowed to flinch. I wasn't allowed to feel the cold. I joined the others, sister, brother, and brother. Are you ready to meet your mom and dad? We nodded. Peter, Johnny, and Jane, and me. The man closed the gap between us, his mouth upturned into a sneer. What happens if you fail in order? Lydia, we said. Good. And what happens when you have obtained and disposed of the target? Self-destruct, of course. Peter smiled and wavered. You were quite clear. Once our mission is cleared, we are set to self-destruct. Very good. Two figures emerged. My mother, a slim blonde wearing a fluffy sweater and jeans. And my father, broad shoulders and a warm smile. Mother held out her arms for a hug and the four of us rushed into her. I caught the back of her head by accident. Where her hair should be was a bald patch. My fingers grazing over warm wetness. Her body lurched in response and her hand shook. Her breath came out in sharp pants against my neck. But she turned it into a laugh. A loud laugh which we all joined in with. And mother tightened her grip on us. The memory bled away once again when mother's hand made impact with my cheek. Wendy Nestor. When I blinked rapidly, she was standing over me. 
Mother was beautiful in color, her dark hair fell in waves in a bright yellow dress and matching apron. Just like the others, Mother was covered in red too. It painted her and for the first time in a while, I was feeling fear. Get up, she chastised. You are being dramatic. Mother helped me to my feet and my head spun. There was a voice in my head, laughing. What do you think you're doing? Get up, it's raining. The voice was a stranger and I wonder why it made me cry. Well, Mother's arms were folded. What happened? Johnny held up the baseball with a guilty smile. Sorry, Mother, we were playing and I hit her in the face. Hit? Before I could stop her, Mother was pressing two fingers into my temples, applying pressure. I was seeing the colors again. Mother pressed harder and I had to bite back a scream. Does that hurt? No, I lied. Open your eyes, she ordered. I did. Any colors, flashing lights? Her face pinched. Are you seeing or hearing things that are not there? I gritted my teeth when the colors bathed her, turned her face into a confusing spot of yellow. No. She smiled widely. Wonderful, you're fine, sweetie. Mom gestured to the others. Alright, wash up for dinner. Inside the kitchen, there were a lot of things which didn't make sense. Hollowed out bodies hanging from meat hooks. Something sour crept up my throat and I slapped myself on the forehead. Stupid, stupid, stupid. Why was I questioning this? I had been the one to help mother. They were skinwalkers that we managed to lure to our home. The pain followed me burning hot in my head. As I struggled to take in blood-splattered countertops and a casserole the bubbling intestines in a soup of blood and gravy. Mom was humming and dancing around the kitchen. She put down seven plates on the table and I stopped to count them. There was Jane, Peter, Johnny, Father, me, and Mother. So why seven plates? I watched Mother cut imaginary vegetables. My daughter. She was saying in hisses of breath bringing the blade of the knife down on the chopping board. She was trembling, trying to stabilize herself against the countertop. I can't, I can't remember her name, but I know I have a daughter. I, I have a sweet baby. She was growing more and more hysterical, stabbing the blade into her hand instead. Mother didn't even flinch. She hasn't seen me in a while. No, a long time. A long time, oh, it's been so long. Darling, oh sweetie, I miss you. Mommy misses you so, so much. Peter took his seat at the table. Hey, Mom, are we having casserole? She turned around, her grin wide. Tears splashing down her cheeks. Yes, oh yes, casserole. Casserole for all of my dear children. The father arrived after that. Hello, family, he said surely before setting his briefcase on the table and taking out his laptop. We all leaned forward in anticipation. After dinner, we always gave a report. A red-haired woman appeared on the screen. She was scowling. Disgraceful, she spat. I have reports of you butchering normal people, and as of an hour ago, Connor Aislinn and his family murdered two people in broad daylight. Your programming must have malfunctioned. No. Mom said in a hearty laugh. 
No, give us another chance. We will get him. She wrapped her arms around us. Isn't that right, kids? No, I think it's time to say goodbye. The woman said with a sigh. It was a pleasure collaborating with you and Nestor family. We have thousands of other families about to be greenlit inside Markham. Unfortunately, you have become useless. Mother and father's smiles remained, despite their panicked yells. Wait! Her lips formed a merciless smile, curving around her self-destruct trigger. Mother dropped first, an explosion in the back of her head, and then father. Seeing mother and father self-destruct only brought more pain that I shouldn't have been able to feel, and accompanied that a memory. This time I was in a classroom. The desks were mostly empty apart from a select few. Kane was at the front, standing on a chair. Whoever these people are, they're in our town, he yelled. They're taking us, our moms and dads, our brothers and sisters, even our grandparents. And what are we supposed to do? A girl leaned on her desk, her eyes raw from crying. What the heck are we supposed to do, Kane? And who put you in charge anyway? A voice yelled from the back. It's a nuclear family factory, come on. What are you guys not seeing? It's right in front of us. A boy in the front jumped up, laughing. His identity was swamped in sunlight, but I could make out a shock of reddish curls poking from his hood. Other me jumped up from her own chair and grabbed his sleeve, yanking him back down. He stumbled awkwardly, slamming back into his seat and almost toppling over. Hey, other me hissed. Are you high? He spluttered. Pfft, no, of course not. Come on. Do you really think I would smoke at a time like this? She rolled her eyes. Yes, this is the perfect time to try and hide away from reality. And you know that you can't do that. And when he didn't respond, she grabbed his sleeve, tugging it. Allie, she needs her big brother. Control your boyfriend, Kane said, rolling his eyes. Anyway, since we're the only ones left, I figured that I should share intel. We can't trust phones or anything technological, just ourselves. Oh, come on, Kane, other me said. Give us something here. How long until they realize that we're here? The town is being emptied, the guy in front of me said in a more serious tone. Anyone they want is taken in, while the rest... Lydia. They all said at the same time. Kane cleared his throat. Well, I can't say anything for beating them, but I know how to get out of the self-destruct. What the? Some boy let out an incredulous laugh, and I resisted against the hiss. Roman's laugh drove me crazy. Kane held up the drill. From what I know, this thing is like a root. A digital root that they just put inside her head, which they program, but... He pointed to his own head. I got it. A girl shrieked. Wait, they took you. He nodded. Before they start programming their stuff, I had managed to get it out before it could cause any real damage. He held up a stringy piece of metal. A coil. This is the O27. When inserted, it acts as a detonator. He stuck the drill into his temple. Drill until you hit something springy, it's not that deep. Plunge your fingers in and pull it out. He shook his head. I'm not saying that it'll bring you back. It's a pretty permanent process. 
But it'll remove the bomb that they put inside your head. What do you mean permanent? I mean mind-altering permanent. Kane got closer, and the boy in front of me turned around, his identity finally bleeding into view. I recognized him, and his lips formed a smile. Peter. Well, crap, he shot me a teasing grin. Let's hope we don't get taken, yeah? Let's hope we don't get taken, yeah. His voice was in my head at the exact time my gaze had flashed to Peter. I didn't feel anything for him. He was nothing to me but in splinters of my memory he had existed in her life. That's something to the mind wiped from me. The woman was still displayed on the laptop smiling wildly after witnessing the death of mother and father. I'll give the Nestor siblings a little longer, she said with a light laugh. You are children after all, let's call it mercy. The laptop exploded. Peter's voice echoed in my ear as my brain started to boil. Something ran from my nose, but I was too busy looking next to me. The same face in the classroom, Kane's best friend, who other me had risked her life to save. Let's not get taken, yeah. I'm sure you know what I did next. I did exactly what Kane had told me to do, regardless of it sounding ridiculous. I grabbed a rag and bit into it, pressed as much pressure as possible, then drilled until they screaming into the gag, until blood was running down my face and neck, screaming against waves of pain hitting me until it hit something. I felt the weight of it. Gritting my teeth, I wrapped my fingers around it and yanked as hard as I could until my fingers were bloody, and a coil of metal, the ends flashing red, was in my fist. It was only when I had managed to remove the 027 from Peter and Jane did I pick up a low, beeping noise. A countdown, I thought. They were getting rid of us and then every trace we had existed. 59. A mechanical voice spoke inside my head. 58. 57, 56. The voice was counting down from 20 by the time that I was dragging them and Johnny over my shoulder and Peter and Jane stumbling my arms. When my feet had touched grass, a blast threw me to the ground and once my face was buried in dirt and mildew, I was laughing until I couldn't breathe. I felt like I was dying, blood seeping from my head and my thoughts dizzy. But the first time in so long, I wasn't able to laugh for myself think for myself and with my siblings next to me, I felt content. Three days later and I'm alone. They are not waking up. I am alone and it's not fair. Makeshift bandages are working but we really need a hospital. Whoever Kane is, he was wrong or at least he was wrong about some things. Removing the 027 does not bring us back. It just removes initial programming. But everything that came after when we were strapped to a chair and forced to forget our names and our lives, that is permanent. Jane, Johnny, and Peter are brain dead. Without commands or that thing inside them, they're nothing. They're just here with me, which makes me wonder. Why am I aware? What happened to me which didn't happen to them? There are things that I need to talk about. Like my brother having the same face as someone who meant a lot to other me. But Peter, or whoever he used to be, is a shell. He and the others are forever awaiting orders. Perfect nuclear children who have reverted back to human, without their humanity. I've tried to bring them back, 
I keep chipping away at them, but I'm scared the deeper that I get, I'm causing more damage than good. My siblings and I are currently in hiding. We can't leave the neighborhood yet. There are guards stationed outside the barriers. Yesterday, they relocated a new family in the house next to ours. They are called the Wilders. The sun looks familiar, but maybe I'm overthinking it. I hope the others wake up soon. I don't know if I can keep dragging them around like this. Is there even any point? Why should I be carrying around dead weight? I can see colors again. I still don't know my name, but it will come. I know that it will. And the others will wake up too. I keep writing it and it thrills me to know that we got away. And we are alive. The Nestor family are awake. Another thing I should mention. The wilder sun keeps catching my eye while I'm scavenging for supplies. I wonder if he's awake. Thanks so much for listening to this week's episode. I really hope that you enjoyed it. Wherever you may be in the world, I hope that you stay safe and sound. And as always, stay creepy.